Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs in a true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a New York Times reporter returns to her hometown to investigate an unsolved murder. Why was the former cop who was arrested never tried? We'll discuss the latest from Serial Productions, the coldest case in Laramie. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, My Husband and Love of My Life. Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Kevin, you are my hero today. Why is Oh, I'm, I know what you're going to say. Because even though it's like February 20-something, yeah. I came home and there was a whole new giant heart box of Russell Stover chocolates. Hey, what can I say? You know, when Easter comes around, whatever's left over from Half Valentine's price, Day. Right? <laughs> no, I don't. It was not reduced price, but uh, it was on a pretty empty shelf. What is wrong with our local market if they are still selling that stuff at full price? Well, they're waiting for Kevin to show yeah, up. They're like, some sucker will take this. <laughs> Another fun fact I learned, uh, Laura, you're very good friends with the head chocolatier at Lint. Mm-hmm. She informed me after my comment on the podcast that we shouldn't tell her how much I like the cheap chocolate from Russell Stover and Whitman's. Yeah. That Lint, in fact, owns both of those brands. <laughs> Yeah, it's so, a chocolate empire. I am not being disloyal to Anne, the chocolate lady, <laughs> <laughs> by eating my Good. crappy, waxy Russell Stover chocolate. It is fine. I love it so much. Also with Mr. Us, Nestle on line two. Mr. <laughs> Nestle on line two. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hey, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hey, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Toby, what is your cheap chocolate guilty pleasure? I don't know. Around Halloween, I would say it's the Crackle Bar. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things I don't see like at grocery stores, but seem to come in fun size only. Yeah. Um. I don't think I've ever seen a full-size crackle bar. Nestle's used to have one that had like uh, like Rice Krispies in it. Mm-hmm. I, you don't see Nestle those around Crunch, either. Right? Nestle Crunch, yeah. exactly. I don't see those around very much either. I don't think you're looking. Um, it's the only other Nestle bar I've ever heard. What other kind of Nestle bars are there? That's it. Uh, Well. That's it. Yeah, I guess. The Nestle Hot Chocolate I guess and like I don't, Nestle That Bar, Nestle Crunch. I don't know. That's not something I've given thought to. You know, I couldn't tell you 
who the manufacturer of some different bars are. Oh, they're those Nestle Easter eggs, those chocolate eggs. You're thinking of Cadbury. Yeah. Oh, Cadbury eggs. Because there's so many little varieties of Hershey's now. It's like Hershey's like regular, Hershey's dark chocolate, Hershey's dark chocolate with almonds. But like Nestle, I'm not feeling that same lineup in my head as I think about them. This is clearly a nutrition podcast. Nestle (laughs) makes the very best, N-E-S-T-L-E-S. That's right. That's right. Nestle's. They own a lot of they don't own a lot of brands though. They own a ton of other brands. Like they I, always buy like if you if you have a fancy water, they'll buy that. If you like come out with a brand of like, you know, something, they'll buy that. That's their thing. Unilever owns, owns everything and Nestle, Philip Morris. Oh, who knows? Does it matter? They're all get my money. Okay. Well, Kevin, this is obviously uh, Monday's podcast. Yep. What is coming up on Thursday's show? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about Netflix's documentary series, Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal. Nice pronunciation, Kevin. Well, I did listen to the podcast called Murdoch Murders. God bless you, Mandy Mandy. Yeah, we all got like admonished for calling the guy Alex Murdoch when it's Alec Murdoch. But to be fair, that's how it's fucking spelled, man. It's Alec Murdoch. It reminds me of S-Town and John McLemore. Like I thought it was Alec. It's Alec Murdoch. What, Alec? Alec? Well, it's Alec, but locally that sounds like Alec. Alec. Mr. Alec. Alec Murdoch. Mm. <laughs> and all those South Carolina TV stations were getting it wrong, too. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's not the podcast, but it is a uh, three-part series, and it is uh, out now on Netflix. All right. So we're going to be talking about that on Thursday. Can I drop one other thing in here in the, before we get going? Of course. I want to, again, acknowledge the fact that it wasn't commercials for Clorox in Spanish, but we did have people say they got uh, commercials for Pine Sol in Spanish. Ah. So... <laughs> I just think, you know, is just trolling us now. This is the this is quite literally the same technology that powers Pandora. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of geolocation stuff in that. And you're supposed to be served something if it's a local ad that would be beneficial to you. And I'm not saying that just because you live in Vermont doesn't mean that you don't speak Spanish, but it's no bueno. What's so funny is that when we told Megan, our wonderful account rep at Stitcher, about the uh, Clorox Spanish ad thing, and we were like, oh, it's no big deal. She's like, no, that's actually a big deal. That's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to get ads in a different language in the United States and like certain. It, we were like, no, it's fine. And, and she's like, no, it's actually, we'll look into it. Literally, like the yeah. next week, we started getting Pine Sol ads. I think we're just being punked. I'm going with it. I'm just rolling I, with it. I have heard from some listeners, we're not the only podcast where that has come up. Yeah. But it's just, we're the ones that will acknowledge it, be embarrassed, and laugh about it. I'm not embarrassed. I'm rolling with it. All I right. think it's content. Every ad is content, Every Kevin. It's content. Yeah. All right. Well, how about content? How about we talk about our, our review tonight? Mucho Pine Sol. Mas Pine Sol. No Mas Pine Sol. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about what we're going to be talking about. Obviously, it's kind of a big deal. Charting when it was just a trailer, I think we should get to it. What do you think, Kevin? Sure. I'm going to drop that first clip right now. I've always remembered it as a mean town, uncommonly mean, a place of jagged edges and cold people, where the wind blew so hard, it actually whipped pebbles at you, actually pushed trucks off the highway. In 1985, when Kim Barker was a teen in Laramie, Wyoming, Shelley Wiley was murdered in her apartment. Now a New York Times reporter, Barker discovered there'd been a break in the long unsolved case. Investigators arrested a former cop with what seemed like overwhelming evidence. On the night Shelley was killed in 1985, Fred Lamb had been staying in the apartment two doors down from her. His blood had been found at the scene. 
And after being confronted with DNA evidence in 2016, he had even told police that, quote, I'm not denying that I did it. And Fred Lamb did it. So how did a case that seemed open and shut go cold again? The Pulitzer Prize winner returned to Wyoming to find out why it took 30 years to identify Fred Lamb and why the charges against him were dropped. He told them what he wanted them to know and just made them super uncomfortable. And that's how it ended. Just, that's it. Okay. Thanks, Fred. See you later, buddy. Let me know when you get back. We'll go have a beer. The Coldest Case in Laramie is the new eight-part series from Serial Productions. Barker digs into the investigation of Lamb and other suspects in the homicide. Was he let go as part of a cover-up, or did the cops just get it wrong? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the coldest case in Laramie, major ones. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Now, Kevin, I want to mention something that you did not put out in your notes. Yeah. But that I actually think is interesting and I think good for a podcast like this, which is putting out all episodes at the same time. What do you think about that choice? Because I think that in this story in particular, there would be disadvantages to releasing this week by week. What do you think? Well, I think it's funny that Serial Productions, which codified the idea that a podcast should come out week to week, goes with the the binge drop. And I, I actually like that. You know, sometimes you're like uh, two weeks in, you're thinking like, am I going to want to revisit this next week? It's great because you can listen to them all at once if you wish. But also, we're not waiting around two months to figure out kind of where they're going with the mystery in this. So, yeah, good for them. I like it because I think there is information and in particular police stuff, legal stuff, suspect stuff that would be, for lack of a better word, Kind of irresponsible to let dangle with later part of the article, if it Mm -hmm. were a print article, also Mm -hmm. being out at the same time. And I think that's a a lesson that other podcasters could learn and that this team has perhaps learned that I think is being demonstrated by this podcast. So I, I actually think it's a good choice in this case. We'll talk about this later. I don't necessarily think that all the choices in this podcast were great. I might be alone in that, but I think this one was a really good one. Toby, your first note for this show was you think this is a subversive podcast. Why do you think that? Well, um, it doesn't really feel like it while you're listening to it, but you know, so much of the true crime podcast, you know, environment revolves around like interviewing people about crimes that happened a, a long time ago, right? Whether they're cold cases, you're, you're looking at new cases, whatever. And, and what this show is really about is how you can't rely on those memories. The whole show is basically set up where that's, it's not really a reveal, but that turns out to be the factor that plays a part in all this stuff. It's not really an indictment, but it does kind of undermine this idea that you can go and talk to people 10, 15, 20 years after the fact and get really useful information to have a new look at a case. And what this shows is, you know, you really can't like at this point, uh, especially people who are close to the case, their memories are so corrupted at this point, just because they've thought about it. They've talked about it, all these things. It's really not of a whole lot of use. So that's why I kind of felt like it was subversive because I think there's a lot of podcasts that are, if they listen to this, 
and they're self-reflective. They're like, well, fuck, you know, that's that's totally what my whole podcast was about. Yeah, I picked up on that theme as well, the inaccuracy of memories. And by the way, Toby, I think one of the things you wanted to point out was that Serial, the first episode was essentially about this, about if only Adnan could remember where he was in 1999, that would make a big difference, right? Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that they pick it up now because in the original season of Serial, they kind of dropped it, right? right. They kind of yeah. brought it up at the beginning and it kind of comes up a little bit, but they kind of led with it. So you thought it would be like sort of a dominant theme throughout and it really kind of went by the wayside. Yeah. And you can see why so many of uh, Shelley's you know, family and friends and the witnesses, they remember like certain things so vividly. And then at the end, we kind of like demonstrate that, no, that's not actually how it went down. And people are like, oh, my goodness, I, I can't believe that that isn't, uh, you know, I, I certainly didn't dream that. I can't imagine when that was that they told me not to worry about it. There's no way I dreamt that up. No way. I know they told me that don't worry about him. And I just, that was one of the most things I remember about anything is how upset I was about him not helping me. Even Kim comes around to the idea that her memories of uh, Laramie, you know, that they were harsher than the reality was at the time. You know, she she has this great setup, Laura, of like how she gets into this podcast, all of her descriptions of Laramie, and they're kind of harsh. But at the very end, she also is kind of like, you know, that was what my memory was, but that isn't what the actual observation was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that those opening descriptions of Laramie, when I think of what I knew about Laramie before this podcast, gel with that. I mean, I immediately, I mean, I think all of us think of Matthew Shepard when we hear the word Laramie. I think she did a great job sort of conjuring up images of Laramie in her opening. She remembered it as a mean town uncommonly mean, a place of jagged edges and cold people. And she talked about, you know, kids got caught fighting and then the, you know, I think it was like the coach would just make them keep fighting it out. And, you know, I think that lead in with her memory, that was a big theme throughout this whole podcast. And I think, you know, we've done a lot of talking in other cases about how reliable is your memory after a certain period and suggestibility. And in this case, you know, I think it really came to, you know, head for me listening to the wife of the main suspect in this case, who was like, well, you know, I said like, that's bullshit or whatever. And like, that's totally out of left, whatever. She like totally making it sound like she told the cop to go like pound sand. But then, you know, I think the episode prior, we had heard her at the time that she was interviewed. So the time period that she was recollecting talking about how he had had these episodes, these sort of rages that he would go into sort of like a PTSD sort of thing, but where he wouldn't remember what was happening and how he would get violent and how she wasn't surprised that he was being charged with this murder. So, you know, I think that was an interesting theme throughout. And I think, you know, we've heard it discussed in other cases, but in this particular case, the way that we were able to listen to the audio from the time, from those interviews, and then here, the current recollection was really effective for me. And I don't think that's at all what you asked, Kevin, but I just went down the rabbit hole of memory. I, I mean, the I, whole I think it's about a, memory, isn't it? But it is. But it was a really, really effective way to show that because we didn't have like, what do you think you remembered? We have this audio of what she said at the time and what he said at the time and what the police officer said at the time. So I think that was just really effective way to show how memory works. I had like a couple of thoughts about this that 
Maybe I'm the only person who feels this way. So Kim describes Laramie as mean. At the very end of the podcast, she refutes that. However, she lets that hang for a really long time. And there are some pieces of writing in here that actually I find offensive about sort of not just this town, but sort of about sort of like people who don't live in New York kind of stuff that I got to say, like, would never fly in a podcast that I helped edit, which is, for instance, like, I roll into town and like I maybe somebody in a new red Prius hanging out, handing out New York Times business cards like this isn't a cool place for like me to be. And I'm so surprised that there's a vegetarian restaurant here. That kind of stuff doesn't negate like the later forgiveness of Laramie for not being as mean as she recollects it. By going back, I've unspooled my own experience into a more complicated one. Most high schools back then were probably their own little cauldrons of mean. The girls at my school were actually pretty nice. My junior year wasn't that bad. There is some sort of like treatment of this part of the world that makes me kind of uncomfortable in this podcast. It's like the West is sort of this place that I I used to live that I can no longer relate to and that I'm sort of superior to culturally. There's another scene that's also reminiscent of that when she interviews somebody in the podcast and she describes her coming on and in the zoom and just being like it's like she's dressed up for an interview and i'm super laid back in my sweats and a baseball cap there's a lot of like personal descriptions the way people look i just feel like there is a lens here of looking at the people in this podcast that wasn't necessary because a lot of this stuff around memory and a lot of this stuff around the view of the case To me, a lot of that stuff took away from it. So you're talking about a perception of superiority? Yeah. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I don't get that. In fact, I think it's different if you're talking about rolling into your your old hometown as opposed to dropping into someone else's new town and making presumptions about who might live there versus you saying, I grew up here and boy, doubt a Prius fits in with the culture here because I know about the culture here. But that's, you know, you have your own opinion. Yeah, I mean, I kind of felt, I mean, I agree more with Rebecca in that I think, I mean, what's kind of interesting about it, right, is she takes on this sort of stereotypical, she takes on exactly the kind of view that somebody who lives in Laramie thinks that somebody lives in New York thinks about them, right? I mean, she embodies that. And then at the end, she's like, well, it actually wasn't so bad. It's like, oh, so you like, you're basically sort of copying to being the sort of poster child for the sort of general misunderstanding from like, you know, quote unquote, East Coastern elites and people who live in places like Laramie. Like it, it hits strange at the beginning because you're, you, you figure there's a lot of editorial people looking at this and a lot of thought given into that little bit right there. Cause the other thing that's weird is she's not very specific about anything, right? She's just giving this sort of impressionistic, like people are cold, the place is cold, you know, it's meaner than cobble or, you know. And then we never wherever. meet anybody like that in the whole right. podcast. Everybody she meets is wonderful. Yeah, she doesn't really have any examples of these things. But doesn't that end up in the end proving the theme? That, but the podcast that, I mean, was that, written that, after they, after the reporting was done. Yeah, right. Yeah. She sets that up. This is my memory. And you go back and you find out that it's false. She doesn't tell you at the end that it's false without... You already drawing the conclusion because, like you said, she never proved that theory. 
She never showed you with a bunch of mean people, right? Everybody was friendly. They had vegetarian whatever, you know, and I don't know. I'm just saying I, it's an interesting point. The only difference I think is for all this other stuff, it was like it was facts, right? It was an, about an event like this happened. I did this. That happened. You did that. And this is more like I thought this place sucked when I lived here. And then she comes back and after a while, she's like, oh, actually, I didn't really think it sucked. I just remembered it that way, which seemed to me like a slightly different thing. But anyway, I mean, I, I, it's not it doesn't overwhelm the podcast, right? This is just like a thing. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things that suck, Kevin, I think it's time for our business section. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the business section sucks. Way to sell it, babe. I mean, it's content, right? Where we talk about what's on our Patreon, right? What's on our Patreon right now, Kevin? Well, right now on Patreon, we have our Crime Writers on After Show. This week, we're going to be playing a game of Would You Rather. Really? Yeah. That's a oh. surprise to me. Yeah. Well, oh, goody. Would you rather <laughs> know about what we're doing, or would you rather be surprised? <laughs> would I rather roll into Laramie in a new red Prius, or be uh, the editor of this podcast telling someone to not say that like that? Well, we know exactly <laughs> what you would do, yes. <laughs> uh, also, we have... Uh, among our other 335 exclusive podcasts there on Patreon, we have the latest episode of Married With Podcast. Uh, we recorded it in front of a live audience. And by live, I mean on a little screen. And uh, one of our listeners asked the uh, controversial question, how often do couples have sex? Mm. And the answer is... It depends. It depends. How much? Oh, really? There's not like a like definite answer, like three times a week. No, like no, not, no. Oh. It was very interesting, and I I know how often Kevin and Rebecca have sex now. It thanks depends. to being a member of that live audience, and that also <laughs> depends. And that depends, and that was very that was very interesting. I think it makes people realize that um, you know. There are many stages of normal. It depends yeah. on how many Russell Stover boxes I get. Oh, Kevin's gonna get some tonight. Watch, watch me preheat her oven. Check this out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, babe, you know you're right about Laramie, and I think that uh, Kim is really snotty. Oh, do you not like her Brian Reed impression as much as I don't like her Brian Reed impression? Brian Reed. We'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> also, Toby's got his latest episode of uh, the Deep Dive out, and the book was called Karachi Vice. I thought it was a good discussion. Toby, but just tell us briefly what the book was about. Uh, the book is about, it sort of follows five uh, people who live in Karachi, which is just absolutely enormous city in Pakistan, and sort of how they navigate the aughts and the early teens, which was a, a time of quite a bit of violence in Karachi. And, you know, Karachi is, a, you know, I think it's probably constantly, but especially at that time, is a city in flux. So super interesting, really well written, you know, part of the world I did not know about in much detail, which I now know more about. So read the book. And if you want a little more insight, you can go and listen to the deep dive. I uh, also want to ask you to sign up for free for our newsletter. Every Thursday, we send out another newsletter. And uh, this week, you'll see things like recaps of our reviews, crime writers on behind the scene. You can see the cat of the week and the tweet of the week and all of our new merch and crazy stuff like that. And it's absolutely free. Go to crimewriterson.com and just give us your email address and we do the rest. Does thus end the business section, Kevin? Thus ends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade the music out right now so we can get back to talking about this podcast. <laughs> Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have consumer cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Laura Bricker. I cannot wait to ask you about my favorite person in this podcast. Oh, oh, oh. That would be Fred Lamb's lawyer, Vaughn, who Kim makes a visit to, who gives Kim all of his material, who talks about his being fired from being a public defender. I am so fascinated by this lawyer and his presence in this podcast. What do you think about the scene with Vaughn? What do you think about Vaughn? And what do you think about his complete willingness to have full candor and just be like, here, take all my shit? I mean, I don't know all the killers, but I've met a lot of killers. If Fred Lamb's a killer, I'll kiss your ass on Main Street. Uh, well, first of all, uh, his client must have signed something giving him permission to do that because otherwise he would be facing some professional standards violations. But he doesn't he care was, about those. I guess those don't count in Laramie. Actually, he was one of my favorite characters as well, Rebecca, because you go in and the first setup when he starts talking about, well, I had a bad year and I had these these three things happen and then I got fired and you're like, oh, this guy's a loser. I was like, great. He's like the defense attorney that nobody wants to get when they get a court-appointed attorney that's not a public defender. But then- Except you do. (laughs) Except you do, because as you keep listening to him, you find out that he has some attorney chops. He's worked on death penalty cases. He has past experience. And so, you know, he puts out there his own shit, explaining his own personal situations with children dying. And I mean, that is human. Nobody is going to be perfect through something like that. But then when he's like, here you go. Here's my file. And here's the discovery. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, This is amazing. And I'm thinking, first thing, of course, the defense investigator in me is thinking like, I hope he got permission for that. But clearly he did. But then that, you know, wealth of information that he hands over pretty much defines the rest of this podcast because we now have access to all the information in this case. So we've got the cop, whatever he is now, the deputy assistant police chief, who really can't talk about anything because it's an active case. We don't need you because, hello, we have the whole file from our best friend, Vaughn. But I think, you know, there's recordings in there. So if I was a reporter and I was, I would have been like ecstatic if somebody gave me all of that information. Because, you know, I think that transparency, you know, he's like, well, here's what I thought about the case. I think there was some racism. I think there was some issues going on. And let's see what you think. And I will say, having listened to her review of all of the information that was in that file, this case is really not black and white. And even at the end with Fred Lamb, Vaughn's client, I'm not really sure how I feel or or what I think about what he may or may not have done. I mean, and, and I think that is because we got to hear all of the information in this case. Yeah. Um, and we got to hear his interviews. Yeah. And so I came away thinking, huh, there's a lot more to this than first blush here. But Vaughn, I actually went and looked up his website today. I was like, I love this guy. I was like, maybe I'm going to go to Laramie, Wyoming. Yeah, you're going to have to yeah. have some 
beers with him. It's beer o'clock. It's beer o'clock. With I know. When they were like, and my, uh, whatever it was, her producer and I, and we drank way too many beers. Not I was for like, nothing. And this is my opinion, not a fact. I think it may have been beer o'clock before they went to do that <laughs> <Yeah>. interview. <laughs> um, but I will say, when this podcast started and they described Fred Lamb's interview and they said that this elderly man had been interviewed for seven hours before he confessed, my very first thought was false confession. That was yep. my very first thought. And I was extremely concerned that this podcast did not immediately ask that question. And then when, they, when I heard this tape, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is a false confession. Because even if he did it, it did not happen the way this confession says it happened, right? He was coerced. Correct. But it also, I believe, is a false confession, okay? And, and what's out in the media, so she has all the information yes. from that discovery, but what is in the media is the cherry-picked information of Fred Lamb did it. Yes. I don't know. Fred Lamb killed a girl. And then when you hear when that comes in the interview, you're like, of course he said it. It's like freaking Brandon Dassey. He just wanted this done. If the preponderance of the evidence says I did it, it should go to the courts. And you said the preponderance of the evidence said you did it. Yeah, I understand that. What do you want me to tell people? What the book said. Fred Lamb did it. Okay. <laughs> pretty, pretty much bottom line thing. And the most, like, telling thing is that Assistant Chief Robert Terry, who, by the way, seems like a very nice person, is approaching this case with... I'm 100% sure that Fred Lamb did it. That is a hallmark of a false confession. A cop is sure that a person did it. A cop puts a vulnerable person, a.k.a. an old diabetic, has an eaten person in a room for seven hours and talks to them. And the first thing they say that sounds like an admission of guilt is the thing that gets recorded as the admission of guilt, as proof of guilt. This is a classic read technique confession that gets recorded. It is fascinating. And that's why I think Vaughn was like, take all of it. But to me, Toby, the most interesting thing that Vaughn says, and the thing that we sort of learn, is that this case is a training exercise for every new detective in this town. It just gets like handed off, handed off, handed off as a basically a training exercise. Right. So what do you think about Vaughn's handing this over and all of this Robert Terry confession stuff? Yeah. So he's in sort of a, a funny position, right? With the whole, this sort of succession of people coming in and, and taking a look at it because, you know, there's, there's going to be inconsistency in like how hard they're looking, what they're going to think about it, all these things. So I think in his mind, if I can get all this information out to somebody from the New York Times, no less, I don't see how it hurts my client from this sort of chaotic situation that he's in right now. It's kind of wild that it would be that way. And it is also like how Fred, who's a former cop, like wouldn't know to just get a lawyer was another, it was another one of those like, again, when you question people who are citizens in these situations, you're like, what an idiot. Why didn't you get a lawyer? Then you see like an actual former cop put in basically the same situation where he's like, well, you know, I'm not really saying you're a suspect, but we better go through the he process of reading your rights. That's a hallmark of a false confession. He thought he yeah, was helping. Yeah, so it's just like, it's like, dude, he's reading your rights. Like, now's the time where you should get a lawyer. Also like, thinks he can and, talk his way out of it. 
Right? Because, oh, yeah, I, I can convince. I guess I didn't do it, so I can convince right. him I didn't do it. You know? Yeah, but he's a cop. You should know that that's not the way it All works. Agreed. You know, He thought agreed. he was helping. He thought he was a, a co-investigator who was helping. But, again, like, I would assume that he probably used that on other people. He doesn't, like, realize it when it's used on him. Like, I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying it shows that people are susceptible to that stuff, even if they you think they should know better at the moment, like the psychology of it is, is such, I guess, that you don't have that sort of defensive reflex, which is like, I'm guilty. I'm not guilty. I don't have anything to worry about. And it's like, yeah, you, you do. Like you're being questioned about it. Like that in and of itself should be something to worry about, even if you don't consider yourself a suspect or don't think you're considered a suspect. So, Kevin, this podcast uses very long pieces of tape. Yep. And one of the ways it uses them is to demonstrate things that are parts of the story. For instance, Vaughn talks about the racism in the case. And then we hear an investigator questioning Alan Griffin. Right. And so we hear this extremely extended piece of tape of this questioning of Alan Griffin, who was this young black man that our murder victim was sleeping with at the time of her murder but it's a very long piece of tape that's used. Do you think these long pieces of tape were used to good effect in this podcast? Because this is something that we've criticized other podcasts for in the past. Yeah, I I liked it. I thought I was surprised that it wasn't broken up. You know, I'm thinking like, are we really just going to roll the tape on this? I found it good, easy to, well, I was able to follow it and I thought it was illuminating, but I could understand if other people would not find it that way because it is a lot of just listening to to them talk. Now, fortunately, these are clips where you feel like things are progressing. It isn't just sort of running in place necessarily. But I mean, we can talk about some of the individual things. Uh, but, you know, in general, normally I wouldn't go for a long, uninterrupted piece of you know interview tape, uh, even one that, you know, the quality is good enough that you could listen to it like this. But um, you know, for whatever reason, I think it works. What did you think about some of the games that that they play in the writing of this podcast? Like there's a lot of like tropes that they sort of play with. Like there's um, the sort well, of typical yeah. like cat and mouse games that a podcast oh. host might do. Well, no, there was actually a really great piece of tape uh, in the beginning where Kim is talking about how important it is that she's got to talk to this detective. And if she doesn't, her case is, is tanked. I'd be persistent, but respectful. A buzzing fly with good manners. Eventually, with a little luck, I would wear him down. But it would be a careful dance. A delicate game of cat and... Is this Robert Terry? Yes, it is. And then it's like he just picks up the phone. It's great. It's hysterical. I thought the way that that came out was was really good. Why don't you come down right now? You talk right now? Right now. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, that's actually how it often goes it's usually not that hard and right no i mean she was right that if she didn't talk to the detective it was going to be very hard but uh i I like the way that they built that up for this quick anticlimactic he picks up the phone one of the things that i really want to ask you guys before we wrap up is your thoughts on the case we have a suspect we have an alternate suspect presented here in the podcast fred lamb obviously is the one that's sort of been centered in the case We have, obviously, Larry Montez, who's presented as the alternate suspect. He's dead. Do you think that it matters? Is that what the podcast is about, is who committed this crime? Do you think Fred Lamb 
is the person we should be looking at. I'm just curious to know your sort of opinions here. I mean, I have a strong one. Laura, do you have any thoughts about that after walking out of this? Or is that just not the point of this podcast? Um, That's interesting. You know, going into it, I was kind of hoping, okay, we might figure out what actually happened here. But to me, it was more of an examination of a case that happened in an area at the time where there wasn't huge media scrutiny like we have now. So this to me was really, I think, the first real deep dive, aside from just like regular kind of court coverage of this case by an investigative journalist. And I think the takeaway I had from this was the family wanting somebody to listen to them and and wanting some closure in terms of like, okay, this person may not be the person going to jail, but we just want to know who did it and why. But more an examination of memory and how memory comes into play in criminal cases. So I think that was more of what the examination was um, because I didn't really come away feeling like Fred Lamb was necessarily guilty. I don't know. I, I feel like it was more like a sort of like this examination of an investigation and how it can go on throughout the years and evolve throughout the years. Cause there was that line at the end where it was like, and then another new detective will like come in and look at the case and start all over again. So it's like, it's always going to look different depending on who looks at it. And each time somebody new looks at it, the people that were key players are probably going to have a slightly different memory of it. Yes, but at the end, Toby, Kim herself, raises Larry Montez again, like Vaughn does, as the viable alternate suspect. What did you think about that? You know, it it didn't seem super compelling to me. You know, I think part of what you get out of this podcast is it's going to be really, really hard at this point to figure it out, right? Unless somebody comes forward and they confess and they know some stuff that you can tell it's not a, a false confession. Like that, that's going to be the only way it really works. Um, I'm not exactly sure why they did that thing where they throw out another suspect. I, you know, maybe they think they, they need to do that to make it seem like Fred is more likely innocent. Like there is like another suspect, but it does come down to the, like, well, you know, he had the opportunity to do it. Like there was that time period. And plus people think he's super creepy. Like everybody does. And he did some similar stuff later. So that to me doesn't seem like a very open and shut case. So, you know, I don't know. That was a note that didn't really resonate with me very much in this podcast. It just seemed like a little like a tack on or something. It seemed like maybe somebody felt like they needed to do it because the stuff that I think is strong and kind of important, that is sort of separate from all that. And as a matter of fact, it seems a little bit contrary to some of these other points they're making. Kevin Flynn, what do you think? I'm just curious. Uh, well, you know, I think serial productions, they always have sort of this, this one thing that they do really well is that they will drop an important clue along the way that you don't realize to come back later, like in S-Town, talking about how John uh, works with mercury. And then that doesn't get mentioned again. But then at the end, you find out that it was very likely it was mercury poisoning. Right. So the fact that, you know, Vaughn says, like, you know, the, all the focus is on whether or not it's Fred or what, you know, Fred did it. How come Fred hasn't been arrested and he mentions i think it's larry montez and they don't really come back to that he touched a little bit on like who he is but then it just goes into you know what fred is now i think that i don't think it's performative that this pulitzer prize winning investigative reporter at the end shares a little bit about what she thinks might happen because you either think if it's not fred you have to wonder 
Well, who is it then? And instead of bringing that up early on and making it a binary, because then it's going to be like Adnan and Jay again. Is it Fred? Is it Larry? Is it Fred? Is it Larry? She waits until sort of all that goes away and she's come to her own conclusion that it's unlikely that it's Fred or that it's very be very hard to prove that it's Fred and gives us somebody else. I really like that. I mean, I really thought that was great. It, it was a note that resonated with me. I was like, oh, yeah. You know, thanks for coming back to that. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The Coldest Case in Laramie, the latest podcast from Serial Productions? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Yeah, I'm going thumbs up with this. I thought this was really interesting. Um, I mean, I have some issues with it, but overall, I really it was something that was engaging to listen to. I really like Kim Barker as a narrator. She had a really good conversational delivery style. There's occasional sarcastic sort of moments put in there. I liked her writing style. I also liked how she approached her interview subjects, kind of pulling back the curtain. You know, when she calls the victim's family for the first time, it's not like, hey, I want to talk to you. It's like, hey, why don't you ask me some questions and then we'll talk. And I thought that was interesting. I think we listened to so many podcasts about different crimes. And what I liked about this one was that it really was sort of the anatomy of memory as it plays into a, I'm going to call it a cold case, an unsolved case at this point, and how that changes as the years go on. And and also, you know, I just thought it was really interesting, this section of the country, to hear, you know, how this case was handled. But overall, I thought this was a really good podcast. I mean, I think there was things I might have done differently, but I listened to it when I was walking this week. And it was something that I was like, huh, you know, I definitely took something away from it. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the coldest case in Laramie? Yeah, so I'm a thumbs up. I guess I'll say that. I mean, I don't want to get spoilery. There are things about this podcast that are different than most true crime podcasts in ways that we often criticize. But I think in this case, there are reasons for doing it the way they do it. So there were times and like one of the things is that they have these interviews or, or, or tapes of interrogations that just kind of go on and on and on. And I, I found all that stuff interesting, but you have to realize that there's, there's a point to it all. So I, I, I think it's got some interesting things to say about true crime podcasts and undermine some of the assumptions that we sometimes make in order to make sense of true crime podcasts or make sense of, of, of true crimes and, and, and how they get sort of investigated or reinvestigated. And so for that, I think it's, I think it's a kind of an interesting and, and important listen for people who are interested in true crime or true crime listeners, because I think there's some lessons that come out of it um, that are good. Again, I, not all the choices are, are perfect. And there's some things that I, I would have liked that they did differently, but I think as a whole, I think it, it, it's it's pretty strong, so I give it a thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. I, I love the concept of this story. You know, the idea of this uh, 
Big time reporter going back to the small town that uh, wronged her as a teen or whatever. You know, it's it's a great setup. But the most interesting thing is not the fact that a New York Times reporter is investigating this cold case. It actually is a real investigation into what happened to Shelley Wiley. But it also goes in some other different directions. It's very smart. And so I think that it's a very good listen. And it's, you know, up there with the quality of, of some of the, the better podcasts from this production company. So I'm going thumb sideways. And here's why. I think that there are laws in this podcast because serial productions forgets how important serial productions is and how many people are listening to this podcast and for many people this is the only podcast they listen to around these issues so i am giving it a thumb sideways for that reason there are some flaws in this podcast that i can't overlook one of them is that there are certain systemic issues that are never actually addressed head on and explicitly There are issues with criminal justice stuff that we're supposed to take away as implied issues around confessions, around police conduct, et cetera, that are never actually said out loud and addressed, that we're supposed to sort of like, as Toby said, like subversive critiques of other true crime podcasts. If you don't listen to other true crime podcasts and only listen to this one, you don't have the vernacular for those things, right? So you just walk away from this with only this context. There are some style issues with this too, where I hear Kim Barker doing her narration in one way, and then I hear her in the field sounding a different way. So I do feel like there's a style thing here that is kind of performative that I don't love. And my third thing is the sort of DEI stuff And the way that the view of the people in this town and in this community is done, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to sort of look at a whole part of America as othered. I don't know. That took me out of the narrative in a way that I didn't want to be taken out of the narrative because there's so much of this podcast that I really, really liked, but giving it a thumb sideways. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call The Crime of the Week. Crime of the Week. An actor is recovering from an onset injury. Liam Ellis was hurt while shooting a porn video for his OnlyFans account. It seems he fractured his penis. Why do you have to say it like that? (laughs) I don't know. I'm comfortable saying penis on the podcast. It's a penis. After finishing his prison stint for drug dealing, the Australian man tried his hand in adult movies. Not his hand. (laughs) Ellis says he was shooting a scene, and when he went to make the boom boom, he wasn't, quote, lined up correctly. He knew something was wrong when his whole schlong turned black. Uh, Oh, my God. Look at Toby's face. Ellis had surgery to heal his penile fracture. It means he won't be able to perform, professionally or otherwise, for at least a month. And swelling of any kind would be rather painful. So he's on a regimen of sunofedrine to stop things from becoming turgid. Turgid? I love the word turgid. Ellis admits he's afraid another aim and miss would be a permanent pecker wrecker. But he vows he'll return to make more films because, he says, he loves seeing a script come to life and... All the fucking. <laughs> so, panel, they say you have to suffer for your art. What's another sex-related injury these performers should avoid? Laura Bricker, what do you think? 
I mean, I'm just going to say penis in the eye could be really bad. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> or carrot in the ear. Toby Ball, what do you think is another sexually injury these performers should avoid? Uh, a dislocated clitoris. Oh, my God. Oh, what ow, do you think, Kevin Flynn? Ow, I'm crossing my legs. Ow. It <laughs> <laughs> just sounds so painful. Well, what in joke? Okay, what should they avoid? Uh, two girls, two cups. <laughs> All right, that's definitely going to do it for us. Uh, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you on social media to ask you what you should be avoiding. How can they find you there? They can find me at Laura Bricker and uh, yeah, send your tips my way. Thank you. Toby Ball, how can you be found on social media? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media to get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett, who, yes, a listener asked, is also the Livy Burdett you hear in the credits on Marketplace. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin P. Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where the wind is so strong it blows pebbles in your face. Ouch. And surprise, there might also be a vegetarian restaurant. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Rebecca Lavoy on... Rebecca Lavoy on redheaded people. Rebecca Lavoy on drugs. Rebecca Lavoy on Kevin Flynn's opinions. Okay, ready? I thought you were going to say Rebecca Lavoy on Kevin Flynn because he brought me more chocolate. No. Yeah.